Now you are here today in week five of the series that we've been walking through and it's called Dear Church. And the reason we're calling it Dear Church is because we're looking at seven different letters that you can find in the New Testament book of Revelation. And these are personalized letters from Jesus to seven distinct different churches. And the guy who wrote these letters down physically and had them delivered uh, to these churches, what we now read in the New Testament book of Revelation, the guy who wrote it down is a guy named John. And if Jesus had a best friend during his lifetime, during his ministry on earth, it's probably this guy named John. He was a disciple who was very, very close to Jesus. Jesus loved him. And it should be no surprise to us that many years later, toward the end of the first century, when there's these very important personalized message from Jesus to these seven churches, that John would be the guy that he picked to physically write it down and to ensure that they were delivered. Today, we're going to read a letter to a church called Sardis, and this is the passage we're going to read. I invite you to grab a Bible if you want and take it out and read along with me. If you want to use a phone, you can do that as well. You guys are a smart crowd. You know this. These letters were not written to us. They're not about us, but they're for us. They really are good, good for us to read because we've been saying this. You know this. The better we understand Jesus's message to other churches, the better we're going to understand his message to our church. And when taken collectively, these seven letters, personally from Jesus to these seven distinct churches, they show us his mindset and his heart for churches. And anything that we read in these letters that's just like inspiring or encouraging, it is good and right for our church to aspire to that. And anything that we read, it's a bit challenging. Well, it's good and right for our church just to recognize, you know what? We're just as vulnerable to those kind of mess-ups of sin as they were. So as we receive these letters, as we read them, as we respond, I think we are well served to do so with a disposition of humility and courage. Humility says, you know what? We could be wrong. We're no better than anybody else. And courage says, I want to have a growth mindset. I don't want to have a fixed mindset. We want to know the truth, whatever it is. And we're going to follow the truth, whatever it is, wherever it leads us. How does that sound? That just sounds good. So let's let that be the disposition with which we read this letter today to the church in Sardis. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God, the seven stars. I know your deeds, and you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I know some of you guys are thinking, man, that, I should have stayed in bed this morning. This sounds a little rough. 
Now, this is a challenging letter, and we're going to get into that, but this is starting to become predictable. Um, just like the last couple of weeks, there's symbolism, there's references in this letter that we've got to figure out. And I, I put a list of some of the things that I think we need to unlock and to really understand and connect with the heart of what this letter is really trying to communicate. We have to unlock what this symbolism means. And let me just acknowledge, I, I feel like maybe I should have done this in weeks earlier, but let me say it today. For some of us, this comes a little bit easier than others. And the reason has nothing to do with your intelligence. Picking up on what the symbolism is and what the references are about many times has everything to do with your familiarity with God's word. If you know it, if you read it and you study it, you start to pick up on it. I, I want to show you a picture here. This was put together by some guys who were trying to illustrate the thousands and thousands of times that one scripture passage cross-references another one throughout the Bible. Last week, I shared this with you, that it's probably best to think about God's word as this grand, unified, true story, and this is trying to illustrate that. And the reason, the reason we make such a big deal out of knowing God's word, we want you to know it, is because this is the best way to know Jesus. So we're going to dive in to the symbolism and references that were in that letter, and then we're going to talk about that letter. The first one that we found is the seven spirits. Well, what's that about? That's the singular Holy Spirit. And that's going to be weird to us. If we don't also know that the number seven is often used to symbolize perfection. And this was originally written in Greek and translated into English, and it's probably a better translation to say sevenfold spirit instead of seven spirits. This is about the Holy Spirit. And in this letter, we see the Trinity at work. Jesus refers to his Father. Jesus is united with the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about his Father as God. Jesus continually refers to himself as God throughout these letters. We see the Trinity at work in engaging the local church. What a beautiful thing. The other one, a little bit easier and maybe harder too is the seven stars. If you were here week one, you remember seven stars, that's the seven angels of the churches. Well, what are the seven angels? Well, you're allowed to disagree with me on this. I believe the seven angels of the seven churches are the pastors who are leading in those churches. And this is, not just, I'm not just persuaded by this, I'm also deeply encouraged by this. Being a pastor is a privilege. It's a tremendous privilege. And there are times that being a pastor means carrying a weight that is way beyond my intelligence or my capacity or my ability. And it has become a deep kind of encouragement that defies what words can describe to know that Jesus holds pastors in his hands. He uses the word alive. What does that mean? Alive is about being saved, being born again, being regenerate. All of that means united with Jesus. Any person... Any person in this room or online, any person who comes to Jesus and essentially says, I know I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I believe you died on the cross to cover my sins, that you rose from the dead. I trust you. I give my allegiance to you. That person is saved or born again or given new life or is spiritually alive. What's the opposite of that? Death, which means not saved, not born again, not regenerate, cut off from Jesus. Any person 
who has not come to Jesus in faith, repented and trusted in him by faith, is in the state of being spiritually dead. And all throughout the Bible, that is a metaphor meaning cut off. And the tragic commentary on this church is that they had a reputation of being alive and vibrant and well. But Jesus said, you are dead and you're cut off from me. So what were they supposed to do? Wake up. And what does wake up mean? It means be woke. Now, if I say anything that's going to make anybody mad today, this is going to be the one. And if your temperature is starting to rise because people who you trust have convinced you that this is a bad word, will you hang with me for about 30 seconds? Do you know who was using this kind of language long before any politician, long before any social activist, long before any podcaster? You know who was talking like that? Not too long ago, a guy told me, Someone tried to discourage me from going to Autumn Ridge because they said, you're a woke pastor. Would you like to know my response to that? By God's grace, may that be 100% true of me. But with the condition, are you still listening? With the condition that I'm woke in the way that Jesus defined it. So what does that mean? Woke is just a punchier, more fun way to say, awake. It means to be aware of what's wrong and aligned with what's right. Can we argue with that? Isn't that kind of the point? Doesn't this sound like the essence of repentance? For too long in my life, I was blind to, I was asleep to, Injustice and evil and sin, not just out in the world, but in me. And now I am awake to it and I can no longer be comfortable with it. I can't tolerate it and I want to be aligned with what is right and good. Scott McKnight is a theologian and an author who I respect a lot. He says this, talking about the whole point of the New Testament book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, when read well, forms us into dissident disciples who discern corruption in the world and the church. We've talked quite a bit about being discerning people in this series, haven't we? The only way to be discerning people is going to include this. We've got to be aware of what's wrong, and we have to be aligned with what's right. Now, I can understand, and I can be very empathetic with People who associate this kind of word, wake up, woke, awake, who, can associate, who associate that with bad behavior, maybe even criminal behavior. I understand that. But we would be doing ourselves a massive discernment, disservice. We'd be doing ourselves a massive disservice if we let another group define for us the kind of language that Jesus was using long before any of them were using it. Does that make sense? I want to press into this a little bit more. If you want to be an ambassador of Jesus in a broken world, if you want to be an ambassador of Jesus in a broken world, don't fight words like woke. Embrace it and leverage it. If I'm talking to somebody, if I meet somebody, and maybe they have a totally different political view than I do, and maybe they have a totally different social view than I do, maybe they have a totally different religious or 
or spiritual view on life than I do. And they use this kind of language. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say something like this. You and I may not use that word exactly the same, but I want you to know that I admire you. I respect you like crazy because you're looking at things that are wrong and you want to be aligned with what's right. I respect that. Would you tell me more? And then you know what I'm going to do next? I'm going to listen. And then I'm going to do my best to ask thoughtful questions. And it's my hope and it's my prayer that they'll sense that I really do like them and that I sincerely care about them. And hopefully, they'll ask me questions in return. And by the way, that's how we know if people are interested in hearing what we think. They ask us questions. Because I wanna have a conversation. One of the conversations, I wanna have a conversation about where does truth, goodness, and beauty, and justice, who does that come from? Who's the source of that? And why is there evil and brokenness and injustice in this world? Why is there what we call sin in this world? And all of this allows me to make a new friend and have a conversation about Jesus. But I can't do that, and you can't do that if we shut down and we allow a word to trigger judgmentalism in us. Judgmentalism is all about building walls. Gospel-cultivated discernment always wants to build bridges with people. Any impulse inside of us to build a wall, to shut people out, or to communicate that someone's not welcome, that's judgmentalism. Gospel-cultivated discernment always tries to build a bridge with people. This is the last thing I'll say. From my heart, I think it's a tragic thing that Christians have been talked into using this word as an insult, knowing that Jesus was using this kind of language long before anybody else. So what happens if this church doesn't wake up? Jesus is going to come like a thief. And that means he's coming without warning, and he's going to come in judgment. And this is a combination of a biblical symbol and reference and a cultural historical reference as well. There are numerous passages where Jesus has talked about coming as a thief in the night. It means coming without warning. You don't know when to expect it. The historical cultural reference is found in remembering that, you, I don't know if you know this, but Sardis was a city, magnificent city, built on top of a very steep plateau it had a reputation of being an unconquerable city. But twice in its history, a small handful of soldiers, I mean like less than 10, were able to conquer the whole city. And this is how they did it. They climbed the steep cliffs, and because the watchmen were not paying attention, they were able to walk right up to the gate and unlock it, and then the attacking army was able to come right into the city. Now, this is Jesus saying, in the same way that you all have been surprised before, you're going to be surprised again when I come, if you don't repent. Repent of what? Well, they got soiled clothes, which is a reference to sin and cultural compromise. And this is more of a historical cultural reference than a biblical reference the city of Sardis, in the same way that like our city is known for medical care, their city was known for uh, prominent wool industry and making fine white clothing. 
And in a city like Sardis, there were places of pagan worship and pagan temples where you were not allowed to enter or approach if you had dirty clothes. You could only be allowed in if you were wearing pristine white linens. And this is on the nose way of Jesus saying, church, church in Sardis, your whole way of being, it's repugnant and unacceptable to me. The inverse of that is dressed in white, which represents being holy and pure. If you were here last week, I hope you remember this, and this might be a new kind of new lingo for some of us. We talked about gospel fluency. And gospel fluency means we know the content of the gospel, we understand the implications of the gospel, we apply the motivations of the gospel. Gospel content is this. We are saved by what Jesus did, not what we do. There's no amount of religious performance, there's no amount of moral performance that can overcome our sin and close the gap between us and God. It is by the life of Jesus, his death on the cross, and his resurrection that we are saved, and we receive all of that simply by trusting him in faith. And when we do, we are seen as wearing white garments. Jesus' status of righteous, holy, morally perfect is credited to us even though we didn't earn it. It's given to us by faith. That's the content of the gospel. The implication of that is now that that's our status, the life that we should be living should be in alignment of that. Not going after things that would contradict this new life that Jesus has given us, but to live in alignment with it. And we're motivated to chase after holiness and obedience because of his love and because of our love for him and because of the joy that we have and the life that he gives. Esau Macaulay is another theologian and author I deeply admire. He says, the love of God, love for God doesn't pursue holiness. Love for God that doesn't pursue holiness misunderstands the freedom from sin inherent in the gospel. And so the kind of life that we should live is a victorious life. And that's not about accomplishing something, and it's not about defeating someone. It's about a faith that endures until the end. Genuine saving faith is a lasting faith, an enduring faith, a faith that continues. And the last bit of symbolism that we have to look at, we're going to combine the book of life and blotting out a name from the book of life. And this is a combination of biblical symbolism and references and cultural and historical references. There are numerous places in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, all throughout the Bible, where something like the book of life is referenced. You could read about it. Here's one passage, Psalm 69, 28. Now, the book of life, what it represents is God's accounting of and his knowledge of all those who have trusted by faith who have eternal life. Now, personally, I don't believe there is an actual, literal, physical book of life in heaven. I think Jesus has an app for that by now. Man, that joke bombed last night. I was iffy. I don't know if you could tell. I was iffy on that one. Seriously, whether it is, this is purely symbolism to communicate God's accounting of and knowledging of, knowledge of all who has eternal life, or whether there actually is a literal physical book like that in heaven, this is what it's about. God's knowledge of all who've trusted in him by faith, who have been given eternal life. Blotting out, this is where we really get into the cultural historical reference. Cities like Sardis had a literal physical registry of all of its citizens. 
And if you were a citizen in Sardis and you committed a crime serious enough, your name would literally be blotted out with ink out of that book, symbolizing or communicating that you have lost the rights and privileges of being a citizen of that city or that commonwealth. And I think this should probably ignite two questions for us. One is, whether it's literal or symbolic, how do you get your name in the book of life? Trust in Jesus. To acknowledge Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I believe in your holy life. I believe you died on the cross to cover my sin. I believe you rose from the dead. I give my life to you. Your name is in the book of life and the spirit of God comes to live inside of you and you are made new, spiritually alive in Christ. That's it. Trusting in what Jesus did, not what we do. Second question, a tad more scary. Are you ready? Whether it's literal or symbolic, can your name be erased from the book of life? It's important to remember that Jesus didn't threaten to blot out anyone's name. What did he say? I will never blot that person's name out. The short answer to this question is no. I don't know who said it first, but a pastor said one time, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Our security in Christ does include us holding on to him, but it's not primarily about us holding on to him. It's about how tightly he holds on to us. Be encouraged by that. But this is also a word of caution. Genuine, sincere, saving faith is a faith that endures. It's a faith that continues. So we've made our way through the symbolism and the references. So we're going to do like we've done over the past few weeks. I'm going to put the text back up on the screen. I'm going to take out the symbolism and references, and I'm going to replace it with what those things were trying to communicate. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the Holy Spirit and the seven pastors of the seven churches. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being united with me, but you are cut off from me. Open your eyes to all that has gone wrong and repent. Align with me. Strengthen what remains and is about to be cut off, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not open your eyes to all that has gone wrong and align with me, I will come in judgment without warning. You will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not given in to sin and cultural compromise. They will walk with me, holy and pure. They are worthy. The one who endures in faith will, like them, be holy and pure. I will never break my promise to give eternal life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There are a handful of genuine believers, genuine followers of Jesus in this church. Um, and there's some encouragement for them. But there isn't really anything encouraging to this church. And because they believe their reputation, because everybody else believes their reputation, out of all the messages we're reading, this is probably the one that's most unexpected. Quick recap of the unexpected messages we've come across week one. It's better to have no church than an unloving church. Week two, sometimes it's better to let a church suffer than prevent it. A couple of weeks ago, we learned that it's possible for a church to stand up for Jesus while standing against Jesus. Last week, we discovered this. It's possible for a church to wrongly value staying together over staying faithful. 
And the unexpected message this week is, it's possible for everyone but Jesus to be convinced that a church is alive and well. So for the next couple of minutes, we got to talk about dead churches. And not because I think our church is dead, I don't. But this church was dead. And we don't want to be a dead church. But for our church and for every church, did you know there's no guarantee? There's no guarantee that we might not slip into that. And so I want us just to devour the words of Jesus this morning and respond with humility, courage, and wisdom to what he said to that church. Part of what he said was this, I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. The fact that reputation is combined with a mention of unfinished deeds, I think this strongly implies that there was a time this church was doing really well. That's how they got that reputation. And the fact that they had unfinished deeds mean that one time they were working and they were doing great things. This church probably had an amazing history. This church probably had a stellar legacy. And that's not a problem. But it can kind of become a problem. So what I want to do is I just want to cover quickly three warning signs of dying churches. And this first one I'm going to share, I think this was this church's problem. I think, th- I think this church, they, got, they were living for their legacy. They were looking in the past. A dying church, they love their legacy more than their mission. They love their legacy more than their mission. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine uh, this week. He really brought this out, and he asked me, he said, he said when you drive, he said, I hope you're not looking in the rearview mirror the whole time. When you guys, when you drive, are you looking in the rearview mirror the whole time? What'll happen? You'll crash. Does anybody remember this movie, Bird Box? Came out several years ago. I can't really remember why this was the case, but to avoid some sort of pernicious alien force, they had to be blindfolded all the time. I can't explain why, but this is why I bring it up. Because several years ago when this movie came out, there was something called the Bird Box Challenge that teenagers across America were doing. Just trying to do normal, everyday life stuff blindfolded. And the town that I was living in at the time, a high school girl decided to take the bird box challenge while driving her car. She took out a light pole. All right, don't do that. Wake up, have your eyes open, look ahead and see what's going on. As foolish as it would be to close your eyes, as foolish as it would be to blind ourselves, as foolish as it would be to be blinded by the past, Happens all the time. Anybody remember a company called Kodak? Anybody got stock in Kodak? I hope not. Because they went bankrupt and went away about 12 years ago. Not only does it happen to companies, it happens to people too. I bet every single one of us probably knows one person who's stuck in their past. And they can't look at today, they can't look forward. All they can do is look back and talk about the past. And after you have an interaction with them, I bet you feel disappointed for them. And I bet in your heart you might even feel like it's pathetic. Because this person has lost their understanding of their purpose and why they live and why they exist. Not only does it happen to companies, not only does it happen to individuals, it can happen to churches too. So what does a healthy church do? We honor the past. We don't live in it. 
Our church is older than the state of Minnesota. We have a lot in our past to honor. And we would be crazy not to honor our past. But it wouldn't be crazy to live in our past. It wouldn't just be wrong to live in our past and only look at our past. It'd be deadly. Churches who walk this path, who kind of get fixated on their past and they can't look at the present and they can't look forward, they love their past more than they love the mission they've been given. Many times this also becomes true of them. Dying churches, they love their methods more than the mission. I mentioned Kodak. The reason I mentioned Kodak is because this is a company that fell in love with their methods more than their mission, and because of that, they no longer exist. When digital photography started to emerge, Kodak doubled down on film. Do you know why? Because they were in love with their methods, not their mission. And I wasn't in the boardroom, and you probably weren't either. But we don't have to have been there to know what the conversation was. Somebody was pounding the table for, we capture moments and memory on film. And they forgot their mission. And their mission was, we capture memories. We capture moments. That's their mission. That's what we help people do. And if they would have awoken to that, They were a giant. They would be leading the world today and helping people capture moments and memories, whether it's digital or on film. We have a mission. Our mission is to lead people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. People who don't know him, we want them to know him. People who know him, we want them to grow in their relationship with him. This is the mindset of a healthy church. The mission never changes. The methods always change. Will you do me a favor? Will you think about something you love at church? It could be this church. It could be a church experience that you had a long time ago. It could be another church. Just think about something you love at church. Are you there? Are you with me? At one time, that was somebody's brand new idea. Even if this thing that you're thinking of is super old, at one time, it was somebody's brand new idea. And when that brand new idea came out, I promise you there are people who go, I don't think we ought to do that. That makes me uncomfortable. I promise you. My favorite hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. You know what they said about it? Too sprightly, too emotional. Get it out of the church. Can you believe that? You know why? Because it is so easy to fall in love with our methods instead of our mission. And our mission is to lead people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. So let me just kind of let you know the kind of church we're intending to be, the kind of pastor I'm, in t- I'm trying to help lead us into being, and it's this, we'll do anything short of sin to lead people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. If it's not a sin, if it doesn't violate wisdom, we'll give it a try. That's the kind of church I want us to be because our mission is so important. And you got to get this one first. If it's not a sin, doesn't violate wisdom, we're going to do it. Let me say the same thing in a different way. There's nothing at this church that we won't cancel or change 
if it means being able to lead more people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. Because our mission is so important. What are we doing next Saturday? Do you think that's a big deal to me? If for some reason we thought that was getting in the way of our mission, we'd kill it in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. Because what's most important? What's most important? The mission. Let me say it another way. There is nothing that we will be too afraid to consider or try if it means being able to lead more people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. This is the mindset of a healthy church. The mission never changes. The methods, they always change. Now, churches who lose sight of this, churches who lose sight of this, they almost always, they most, almost always end up adopting the same kind of belief. And it's, it's just tragic for a church. Churches who lose sight of their mission, they stop looking out, they start looking inward, and they buy into a bankrupt belief, and it's this. Dying churches, they believe their church exists for Christians. I want to encourage you, read through Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Read, read these letters. Every church but one is experiencing persecution, and it's this one. The church in Sardis is not experiencing persecution. Why do you think that is? If you were a devoted follower of Jesus in the church in Sardis, you were getting more opposition from people inside the church than outside. It's because they were so self-focused, they were irrelevant and not even worth noticing in their community. One of my all-time favorite Bible teachers is Warren Wiersbe. This is how he describes that church. He says, the unsaved in Sardis, or the people who didn't go to church, the people who weren't followers of Jesus in that city, saw the church as, as a respectable group of people who were neither dangerous nor desirable. They were decent people with a dying witness and a decaying ministry. And churches who end up here, they end up there because they're all walking a path that causes them to look in instead of up and out. Four years ago, you guys didn't know who I was yet, and I was interviewing to be the next lead pastor here at Autumn Ridge. I had a beautiful, wonderful conversation with the elder board and the chairman of the elder board in that conversation asked me this question because he wanted to hear me talk about it with everybody else in the room. And he said, Rick, tell me what you think. Is church primarily for Christians or non-Christians? And I said, well, I appreciate the question. The problem is those aren't the only answers. Church is for Jesus. Church is for Jesus. And it should be good for all people. Whether they are believers and followers of Jesus or not. And that answer will always confuse us and confound us if we don't remember what a church is. Because it's not a location, it's not a building, it's not an event like a service we're doing right now. This is a church. Baptized followers of Jesus in a specific location who are devoted to Jesus, his purposes, and each other. That's a church. Church is follower of Jesus. What does Christian mean? Follower of Jesus. So I'm going to take that statement, church exists for Christians. I'm going to put it on the screen again, but I'm going to replace those terms with what they actually mean. And we're going to see, does that statement make sense or not? Jesus followers exist for Jesus followers. That's not the gospel. That's narcissism. That's not Christianity. That's narcissism. It's not just wrong for a church to exist for itself. 
It's deadly. I'm asking you right now to remember, how do we end our service? The way we end our service, it's called a benediction. And we, re- we end it by reading the same set of verses every week. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, for Christ, love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. We died to our old way of life. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for who? But for him who died for them and was raised again. This is a healthy church. We live for Jesus, not ourselves. We live for who? Not for who? That's right. Every church gets to pick. The church in Sardis got to make a choice. Our church gets to make a choice. Every church gets to make a choice. Which path are we going to walk? Do we walk the dying path? Or do we walk a path of life and vibrancy and unity with Jesus? This is the line we read in every letter. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And based on this, this has been our thesis throughout the series. Knowing the truth doesn't change anything. Submitting to the truth changes everything. I want to remind us of how all of these letters started. Before the first letter begins, there's a section where Jesus reminds us all that he was the one who was dead and is alive again. He reminds us of the resurrection. Our hope is in the resurrection. As individuals and as a church, our hope is in the resurrection. And the same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power of God that is available to all of us who trust in him. He makes dead things alive. He makes broken things new. And so whatever you are facing, whatever hardship, whatever struggle, whatever uncertainty, whether it's individually or we face it collectively as a church, even if we needed to face sins without and face our own sins within. Our hope is in the one who turns dead things into life. May we be, may we be a church with ears to hear, a heart to understand, and may we be a church who loves Jesus and this precious mission that he's given us more than we love all other things. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the presence of your spirit. And we thank you that our hope is not in ourselves, but it's in you. And by your power, may we be people with open ears and soft hearts who are following Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.